At this point, when you survey churches in the States, the evangelical churches often have the lowest rates of uh, political participation now. A lot of them are just totally out on it. They're completely burnt out after all this time. Which is fascinating. Yeah, that burnout. I mean, it's something that a lot of people wouldn't have predicted. And actually, when you think back at it, like, well, actually, maybe you should have been a bit more skeptical. That's right. Um, anyway, that's that's all fascinating. But I'm going to put a pin in that. Um, because just on, on the question of culture war, because I think a lot of the... I mean, my tendency is to describe a lot of contemporary politics as culture war. Um, do you see it as a question of content or of form? Um, so does culture war only pertain to certain issues, certain types of topics like abortion probably is the most kind of, um, you know, archetypal one that there is, um, particularly in U.S. politics? Or do you see it more as a way of doing politics, you know, so that it could attach itself to any sorts of issues, but it could have a certain culture war framing? So I think there are a few different things that go into culture war. So one is is this sense of a forever war, this sense of a, an issue that where you can't really win, where it's not clear what winning would mean, where even if you got what appears to be a win, that would immediately give way to just a new round of the same antagonism. So for instance, you fight a, a culture war to achieve gay marriage, you achieve gay marriage, and then immediately all of the activist organizations that were previously caught up in arguing for that pivot to arguing for something else that polarizes along the same lines. So the same issue is always current and always mm. in broadly a similar kind of way with maybe depending on which particular issue they pick, uh, shifting a little bit what percentages of people agree. But it's always there. You never get rid of it. Uh, and in part because there are so many people whose careers at this point rely on the issue continuing to be relevant. So it cannot be resolved in any kind of way. So I think there's a forever war aspect that's important. Uh, in addition to that, I also think it's it's worth emphasizing that a culture war issue never actually produces a living standard increase in material terms. So even if you win a culture war issue, that isn't going to make it easier for people to get houses or health care or education or energy uh, at scale. Uh, it might shift a little bit the distribution of something currently. So some people might get it rather than other people. Uh, but it, that, it's not going to result in any kind of broad uh, alleviation of the position of the working class or the position of the fallen professionals. They're not going to, as uh, an entire class, see any kind of improvement from advocating on the basis of the issue. So there's a, a sense that even if you could resolve it, it would be inert. It would not actually do anything. Uh, so there's a pointlessness with culture war in both of those senses that I think is really relevant. Yeah, no, I, I can, um, I can see that. I think that that sort of futility and um, attachment to symbols, which try to perpetuate that politics as long as is, as long as is possible. So that's right. There is no. Yeah, it's a, no it's an industry. It's a business to do it rather than actually a robustly political class interest based struggle. And I think for a lot of participants, I mean ordinary participants, not the sort of um, as you call them, rum professionals who are leading this stuff through the media, um, but just ordinary people who participate and uh, align with one side or the other. I think there's a both sides think they're doing class politics, not explicitly, and not certainly not in those terms. But I think there's a perverted form of class politics that they're thinking they're fighting for the ordinary man, the ordinary good person somehow against the evil parasites at the top, which actually ends up sounding like a kind of anti-Semitic socialism of fools version of class politics, but maybe that's appropriate too. Um, at any rate, there's some kind of um, us here at the bottom against up the, there's them up there at the top, and both sides kind of do this. 
Yes, and this is because the working class has become subaltern in the United States. It's not able to speak. It no longer has organizations through which it can speak. The unions that still exist that are meaningfully influential are usually influential because they're in sectors where you've got professionals in them, uh, or you are dealing with sectors where you've got, uh, for some reason, some kind of structural or institutional advantage for the laborer. Uh, In most of the economy, the uh, workers don't have those kinds of advantages. So the organizations that used to organize them and attempt to speak for them, even if in a sometimes ineffective way through mediators that were not always trustworthy, uh, those organizations are basically gone. And so workers can't really speak in U.S. politics. And that creates an opportunity for rump professionals to market themselves as uh, subaltern whispers, as, as people who know what's really going on with the working class, people who, oh, I know how to mobilize the workers to come back to politics and vote. Because ultimately, the workers are not going to do very much apart from vote. Uh, The only sign that you really have that you've managed to reach them is that they've shown up and voted. And that becomes uh, a whole, uh, you know, within political science, I think there's an enormous, probably a a whole, maybe subfield is too strong, but uh, a significant area of research interest in just how do you get these people Mm -hmm. to show up, uh, uh, you know, and and going out into into you know kind of anthropologically in the old imperialist sense, going out and trying to understand uh, what is this community and how does it work and how do you actually get people to uh, to do anything? A hillbilly elegy type, running out into Appalachia and speaking to people and trying to understand what motivates them. Uh, and increasingly, it's just totally removed from what actually goes on. The people who are doing it have no actual connection to or roots in any of this stuff. And they, most of them don't really know. Of course, the trouble is even to talk about this is itself to engage in it. There's no way of talking about what do the workers really think or what do they really want without in some way engaging in precisely this thing. Mm -hmm. The system has no way of actually enabling them to speak. Well, hello, listener. I hope you like what you're hearing. It's a short excerpt from an episode that's available only to subscribers. Want to support BungaCast and get at least two original episodes a month? Sign up at patreon.com slash BungaCast right now. $5 a month patrons get access to exclusive episodes like our in-depth analyses of present history. You know, the big stuff that's happening right now. As well as chats with our regular guests, extended interviews with the key thinkers trying to understand our world today, and much more. For $10 a month, you join the BungaCast Reading Club the place for those of us who are serious about equipping ourselves with the necessary intellectual tools for understanding the world and seeking to change it. Phil, George, and myself, Alex, look forward to seeing you there. Patreon.com slash BungaCast.